It's been said that everyone wants to go to heaven, but not yet. Everyone wants to go to heaven, but they don't want to die to get there. Not only do do people not want to die, people don't want the dying process. They don't want the aging process. According to Orbis Research based out of Dallas, Texas, the the global anti-aging market is $250 billion. John found that funny. I'm not quite sure why. I'll have to talk to him afterwards. Um, People spend money on creams and products and services all to avoid the aging process. People don't want to die. In fact, people have written books to teach you on how not to die. There's an author by the name of Deepak Chopra. He wrote a book called Ageless Body timeless mind in the 1990s and uh, he was trying to teach people how not to age and I saw a meme the other day I'll show it to you Um, he said contrary to our traditional notions of aging we can learn to direct the way our bodies metabolize time and uh, he said that many years ago and and now we kind of see how well he's done at that The problem is that we haven't figured out how to stop aging. That's not a problem we've been able to to solve. We we haven't figured out how to escape death. And and, and we we might say that that mind over matter, we use these types of phrases, but our mind is, is, is embedded in matter. And so matter has the upper hand. In our passage this morning, we grapple with our objection to the idea of resurrected bodies. And we talked a little bit about that last time. Just the sheer unbelievability that that decomposing bodies could actually raise from the dead. It's hard to believe. And so what do we do in light of that? What is Paul trying to say in light of that? He goes back to the resurrection of Jesus being the proof that there really are, there really is a resurrection of the dead. That's his first point. And now he's anticipating this objection, like, how does it actually work? And so what I want to do in this this longer passage is break it down into four truths about resurrection bodies that Paul is communicating to us. The first is that, simple, that resurrection bodies are possible. Resurrection bodies are possible. The second is resurrection bodies are better. The third is that resurrection bodies are necessary. And the fourth is that resurrection bodies are victorious. So the first point, and this is a relatively short point. Resurrection bodies are possible. Let me read verse 35 again. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? And, and, and Paul is anticipating the objection. He's saying someone will say this. 
And, and, and someone will say this speaking out of a mindset that doesn't believe that it's possible. And, and I talked about this last time. You know, people will go and spend hours whale watching because they believe it's possible. But no one will go with me to the graveyard to go resurrection body watching. Not for five minutes. Because you don't believe it's possible. You haven't seen it. And so he's dealing with this basic and fundamental objection. And so much, and we have this mindset that if, if, if that doesn't happen, if bodies don't raise, for the, raise from the dead, then the best that we can do is to preserve our current body. How many of you have heard of uh, cryogenics? Raise your hand. It's, uh, and, and cryonics in particular is, is the field of study around how do you, how do you deep freeze a human corpse? And, and, and the idea is, and we've seen this with simple organisms, that you can deep freeze it and bring it back to life, but, but with a full, complex human being, can you freeze it at the point of death and with the hope that some future point when they figure out the cure to whatever you died from, they'd unfreeze you so that you can live again. This is a real thing, and, and some people have chosen to spend lots of money to freeze their body. The most, probably the most famous person is Ted Williams. Ted Williams, who, a Hall of Fame baseball player, decided that when he dies, he wants to have his body frozen. Uh, Larry King, who is not dead yet, has also expressed the desire to have his body frozen. I want to I play a clip to, to show you uh, his reasoning, his logic for wanting to do this. I said, well, you did my show, Dinner with the Kings. Yeah. Uh, it was a great, one of the great shows. Yeah. Ever. Yes, and you were shocked at that. I was shocked that you want to be cryogenically frozen. Well, he, Why? He, okay. I don't believe in an afterlife. I can't. I, I just never accepted it. I never made that leap of faith. So, that means when you die, it's bye-bye, baby. Right? Right. Lights out. Goodbye. Goodbye. So the only hope, the only fragment of hope, is to be frozen, and then someday they cure whatever you died of, and you're back. So in other words, you put me in the ground, or you, you, you burn me up, whatever, that's, you, you don't want that. I want to have a, I'm Jewish, we got to have hope. I got to have, if I, I have a fragment of hope, my wife is. Oh, I thought you were saying you want to be frozen at this size. <laughs> I want to be made real small, and then frozen. So and put in someone's drink. My wife. <laughs> so Larry, Larry King's logic actually makes a lot of sense. It says, I don't believe in an afterlife. And so if you cremate me or if you put me in the ground, like, there's no chance. But if you can freeze me and if science evolves to the point where they can figure out how to cure what I died of, then then I might have a fragment of a chance, he says. And Paul has a response to Larry King. Paul has a response to the Corinthians who are bringing up this objection. His response is, is this. We read in verse 36. You fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's, he's using uh, an illustration 
that's based on something uh, you may have seen before. So I, I'm going to tell you that I have uh, in my pockets an apple tree. Do you believe me? Let's see if I can find it here. Here we go. This is, this is an apple tree. I think I have two if I... Yeah, I do have two. Does someone want to verify that this is an apple tree? Isaac, is this an apple tree? It's not an apple tree. Are you sure? Is that an apple tree? Could be. It's actually, I cut up an apple this morning. <clears throat> it's an apple seed. He's using an illustration that points to agriculture. A seed, when you sow it, dies and it becomes something else. It's given a new body. And what, what Paul is saying is, what, what seems incredible, this idea of resurrection, is actually built into nature, that God has given a shadow or a picture of what resurrection looks like in the form of seeds. Seeds have a body they go into the ground, they die, they become something else, but it's still the same, just with a different body. And what he's saying here is that, that God has the ability to sow our bodies and bring them back to life. It's a very simple point. He's just saying God has built into this idea of resurrection into nature. And so he's, he's, he's rejecting this objection that says it doesn't happen, it can't happen. He's saying, no, it does. God actually shows you a picture of what resurrection looks like in agriculture. And, and God has demonstrated the ability to make all sorts of bodies. That's what you get in uh, verse uh, 37 and following. So, and as for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or of another grain, and then it says, God gives it a body as he wants to each of the seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. And he goes through this, you know, sun and, and stars and moon and fish and animals. The point is, is that God is very creative. He's, he, he, he doesn't run out of ideas in terms of how to bring a body. Death does not stymie God. It doesn't stump God. He's not like, oh, I ran out of things to do. I ran out of ideas. God has demonstrated just how creative he is that when something dies, he can bring a body as he chooses. Resurrection is possible. Resurrection bodies are possible, but not only are they possible, resurrection bodies are better. Resurrection bodies are better. Let me read starting in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Let's see if this works here. Check, check. See if you can hear this. My, my wife hates when I do that. You know, you, know what that the, you know what the sound of that was? 
It's the sound of corruption. <laughs> My knees are corrupted. I, can't, I used to play basketball. I haven't played basketball in a couple of years because of that. Basically, I've torn the meniscus in both knees, and they're very creaky. And I don't consider myself very old, but, but my knees sound very old. Some of you have sounds of corruption in your bodies. Right? It's, it's a reality. We get older. Our bodies break down. It is a fact of life. We might try to ignore it. We might try to rub some icy hot on it. But the reality is we can't avoid it. Even those who are spiritual gurus can't avoid it. There's a, there's a, a, a tangible corruptibility to our bodies. And it's not just our bodies, it's, it's our world as well. There's a corruption in the world as a whole. As we look at natural disasters, we hear of floods in India, we hear of volcanoes erupting in Hawaii, we hear of uh, wildfires in, in California, that, that nature itself is working against itself and causing destruction and corruption and futility. And not only is it in the physical, but it's also in the spiritual, that there's, there's corruption from people towards us. A story that really sticks out to me, sort of in my life, in my experience, where I experienced evil towards me, I was seventh grade, I think, and I used to really love collecting baseball cards, loved it. I would get the uh, price guide, you know, and you, you look up the cards in this price guide, and it tells you how much the cards are worth, and, and back then it was like, oh, if I had a card that was worth five dollars like that was a lot to me and you would put them in plastic and you would protect them and you would guard them and, and I brought them into school one day because I was proud of my collection I wanted to show my friends what cards I had and I came in with a shoebox of maybe maybe a hundred cards and and they're being passed around and people are looking at them and and when I get the shoebox back it's it's lighter And I didn't want to, like, go and count or accuse right then because I didn't know. But as soon as I get back home by myself, I start going through my cards. And, and instead of 100 cards, it's like 60 cards. And instead of having some of uh, the, the really cool rookie cards that I had, they're, they're kind of gone. And, and the really sad part about that story for me was I understood if some of the, the posers in the classroom had taken my stuff, the people I didn't like or the people who were, um, who, who didn't like us and my friends. But what I came to find out that it was my two closest friends who were in on the theft. And at that point, I'm like, wow, okay. Like, it's so violating. If you've ever been stolen from, it's violating. Like, how do they have the right to do that to me? It was just an early picture in life of, of the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. People aren't the way that you would expect them to be. We live in a corrupted and broken world. Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 23 says this, For we know that the whole creation 
has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting, uh, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. There's this idea that we recognize deep within ourselves that the world is not the way it ought to be, and we long for the redemption of our bodies, our bodies and the world itself. A world that is free from injustice, a world that is free from pain, a world that is free from suffering. And so for resurrection to be of any meaning for us, for, for resurrection bodies to, to be something that we long for, these resurrection bodies have to be better. Right? It's, it's interesting that the, the people who are getting frozen in hopes of a future resurrection are, are getting frozen when they're old. And so when they finally get unfrozen, guess what? They're still going to be old. They'll, at best, there'll be one less problem, but they'll still have all their wrinkles. They'll still have all their creaky knees. They haven't really solved anything. So if resurrection is to be a real hope, our, our, those bodies have to be better than the bodies we have, or we're just extending more of the same. Paul says, resurrection, we go from corrupt, corruption to incorruptible, from weakness to power, from dishonor to glory, from natural to spiritual. What does this look like? What, what do resurrection bodies look like? This is a big question, and the Bible doesn't answer it perfectly. And some people have this idea of like chubby babies in the sky on clouds playing harps. You don't really see that in Scripture. And so the question is, what do they look like? We don't know exactly, but what, what do we know? We know that God is creative. We know, and, and we see this in verse uh, 46, uh, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And, and and this is important because what, he, what he's saying is God started with the natural. God created Adam and Eve and said it was very good. The, the natural is not a bad thing. It was God's idea. He says, you know what? This would be a good thing. It came first. And so, and so it's, it's not inconceivable to believe that, that, that what God would recreate is something still physical and tangible. When Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to many, he didn't appear as just this ephemeral spirit that you could just wipe your arm through. Right? He, said, come, he said, come, touch, see, feel. They could see him. They could touch him. He ate with people. He was hungry. Right? This is... This begins to paint a picture of what a resurrection body could look like. Now, Jesus said he wasn't glorified yet, so maybe, maybe we look even a little bit different. And he had some interesting tricks where he walked through doors that were locked. So we don't, know, we don't fully know, but it begins to give us a picture. Don't think of like this chubby baby in the sky that's playing a harp. We don't really get that picture. Think of what did God start with and see what could God do to improve what he started with. 
resurrection bodies are better. We don't know exactly what it will look like, but we know it will be at least as good as what we have, only better. Resurrection bodies are possible. Resurrection bodies are better. And resurrection bodies are necessary. They're necessary. Let me read verse 50. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Uh, how many of you have a smartphone? Uh, how, many, how many of you have done an upgrade uh, to a new operating system? Okay. And, and, and inevitably, what happens when you do that? Some, some of your apps might stop working. Right? And, and the reason why that is is because the old apps need to be compatible with the new environment. Okay? And, and I use that illustration just to demonstrate what's happening here. God is saying, I'm creating a new environment. I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth and a new kingdom. And as part of that new heavens and new earth and new kingdom, I need you all to be upgraded. That's what he means. The old version of you cannot inherit because it's, it's, it's fundamentally incompatible. In fact, we don't want the new kingdom to be backwards compatible with our old selves. Because then we'll just bring in our old junk into the new kingdom and we won't have a new kingdom. We'll have more of the same. And so God is saying in order for, in order for us to inherit the kingdom, we have to be changed. Resurrection with new bodies is necessary. It's not optional. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the, the kingdom. And what he's saying is mere mortals cannot inherit the kingdom. Our bodies must be changed. And what he says, the, the timing of this, when it happens, is interesting. Let me read verses 51 and 52. Listen. I am telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, Paul, in an earlier letter to the Thessalonians, also references this description of the last, of a trumpet sounding. And in that, he clearly connects, and this is 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 16, he clearly connects the trumpet to the coming of Jesus. And so I believe that's what Paul has in mind here. So, so the timing of when we get resurrected bodies, these, these new bodies, is at the time where Jesus comes. And what he's saying is some people are going to be asleep. And that's a euphemism for dead, right? They're, they're sleeping. And, the, and, the, and, the, and those who are dead will be raised, incorruptible, and those who are not dead will be changed. So, so those who are still alive when Jesus comes, they still get a resurrected body. They get a new body. Because all the old apps have to be updated. This is the point. So, so Jesus is saying resurrection, or Paul is saying resurrection is necessary. And the point at which it happens is when Jesus comes back. And there's, there's an important implication in understanding the, the timing for when we get new bodies. And that's this. We should never think that we've ever arrived here 
under the sun in our current bodies. We should never think that we've gotten to the place where we finally reach the, the point of maturity. We've got it. We've, 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 we've reached the pinnacle. We're done. I remember, because it leads to weirdness. That, that's the, I was in college and um, at the University of Washington out in uh, an area called the Red Square. And the Red Square was, is kind of an ugly area. It's just all red brick uh, that sits on top of a, a garage, a parking garage. But in this open space, you would often get these itinerant preachers who would come in and they would preach out on Red Square and all the, uh, all the students would be out just sitting, reading books or enjoying the sun or whatnot. And, and you would get these preachers and it was kind of entertaining. And, and, the, and, the, and the students would watch the preachers because usually these were the, 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 the weird, the wacko preachers who were just, you know, had big signs that God hates everyone. And so there's this one guy who came in and, and he was preaching. I was sitting out there just listening to him. And, and he says something that, like, made me, uh, made me alert. He said, uh, he said, we can stop sinning so that we can be perfect. Like, we can be perfect in this life. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And someone raises their hand and says, hey, like, when's the last time you sinned? He said, 1968. He wasn't joking. He was dead serious. He hadn't sinned since 1968. And, and I thought to myself, that's obviously wrong because you just lied and that's a sin. <laughs> we shouldn't think we've ever arrived because we still have bodies that are corrupt. We still have minds that are prone to sin. So in this earth, we haven't arrived. In this earth, we, we still, we, we come with a posture of humility, recognizing that, we, that God still hasn't glorified us, that we're saved by grace through faith. And that that's our hope, not in achieving perfection in this life. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to improve. It doesn't mean we don't strive to honor God with our lives, but it also means we recognize that you think about the, the greatest commandment is to, to love God with all your heart mind soul and strength like it's not like on off that's not like a discreet thing like okay i did the thing and and i loved god with all my heart soul and strength it's it's a continuum it's a spectrum and so at any moment even if you're doing a good thing if your heart is not fully in it well guess what you haven't loved god with all your heart mind soul and strength and so really we continually sin we continually fall short of God's standard of perfection so that if we base, if we base our, our, um, our confidence in the flesh, we should have zero confidence because I don't think I've ever done anything where I could say truthfully that I've done this with all of my heart and all of my strength. I've loved my mom with all of my heart and all of my strength. And if we really understand the magnitude of that commandment, we would understand how desperately we need a Savior, not just for the times where we screw up majorly, but for the moment-by-moment acts of our lives that don't fully appreciate what God has done for us. 
there is a time, there is a day coming where we get resurrected bodies and where sin is no more. But until then, we groan and we long for and we hope, not in ourselves, but in God to give us new bodies. Resurrection bodies are possible. Resurrection bodies are better. Resurrection bodies are necessary. And finally, resurrection bodies are victorious. Resurrection bodies are, are victorious. Let me read and continue reading in verses, uh, verse 54 through 55. <coughs> when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting. My wife and I um, recently went to go see the movie Black Klansman. Uh, it's a really good movie. It's got some language stuff, so I would encourage, I would recommend it, but note that there's some harsh language with um, uh, racial epithets and whatnot. Um, but I'm glad we saw it. And uh, the movie, the premise is about this black police officer. Uh, in Colorado Springs, who infiltrates the Ku Klux Klan. And, and if you can imagine, like, how in the world would that happen? I would say, go see the movie. But, but in that movie, it's very clear that there's good guys and bad guys, and the bad guys are the KKK, right? They're the ones who are spewing hate against various uh, races and, and, and Jews and blacks and and homosexuals, they're just spewing all of this venom towards other people groups. And, and then you have this black police officer who's going to infiltrate to, to try to thwart some of, their, some of their plans. And so, inevitably, you're rooting for this black police, of, police officer to, to do the thing he wants to do. And you're rooting against the KKK and you're hoping that this movie comes to some sort of happy ending. And, and that's the way that stories work. Stories have good guys and stories have bad guys. And, and, and we hope, we, we seem to be addicted to this idea of a happy ending that, that at some point they, they resolve in, in, in a situation or a resolution that, that we are satisfied with. That at the end of the day, the, the good people win, right? And I think the question, why do we, why do we long for happy endings? How many of you can think of a children's story that doesn't have a happy ending? I'm sure there are somewhere. And it's not to say that stories don't have tragedy or stories don't have dilemmas or problems or even that sometimes we don't see bad in the good characters or good in the bad characters. I think good stories bring out those nuances but still, at the end of the day, there's something in our hearts that longs for a resolution that is satisfactory. And I wonder, I, I know my greatest fear in life, and I wonder if it's shared with others, is that at the end of the day, the bad guys win. My greatest fear is that in eternity, like ultimately, the bad guys will win. The, 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 that the ones who are in power and oppressing people with their power that the ones who are spewing out racial hatred against others, that, that somehow they would win in the end. That's my greatest fear. 
And I wonder if that's why we long for, for happy endings, because we hope that at some level that ultimately good would win out. That we wouldn't be destined for an eternity where evil continues to reign and have its way. And I remember walking away from that movie um, with hope. Hope not in the police officer's effort to thwart the local KKK in his community. Because the KKK still exists. White supremacist groups still exist and continue to this day. And so my hope is not in any one person's individual action to thwart a particular group in a point in time. But my hope is that ultimately there is an authority who oversees and says, I will end evil once and for all. And my hope is in God, that that is the story that God is writing. It's, it's a battle against good and evil. The biggest story, the, the grand narrative of the universe is this cosmic battle between good and evil. And here, in this passage, death is seen as the enemy, is presented as the final enemy. And then in verse 56, it says, the, the sting of death is sin. Sin is the heart beat of death, of the enemy. And law animates sin. You see, it says in verse 56, the power of sin is the law. What does that mean? It simply means that it's this idea when you're told not to do something, like there's, a, there's something in you that says, wait, why can't I do that? <laughs> right? When you're told to do something, there's something in you that says, I think I'd rather sleep or take a nap or eat something, right? This is idea of procrastination or, or, or proactively doing the thing that we're told not to do. That, that's, that's how, that's the law animating or giving power to sin. When, when, when Adam and Eve are told not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that is the first law that animates. All of a sudden, you have a temptation that comes because of that rule. And when Adam, our father, entered into that temptation, we entered in to the consequence of that sin. And that's death. Death is the consequence of sin. And so what we have in the grand story is not good people and bad people. What we have when we understand what's really going on is we have bad people and more bad people. Because we've all sinned. Remember, I was just telling you the story when I was in seventh grade and I had this injustice with my, my closest friends stealing my baseball cards or orchestrating the stealing of my baseball cards. I thought, that's injustice. They're wrong. They're evil. And it was. That same year, I remember something I did that was equally, if not more, evil than what they did. I remember two, those two same friends who, who betrayed me. We were uh, at another point in time uh, picking on another kid in school. His name was Charles. And 
and I, I don't know that I would look back and consider my, like the whole of my childhood being a bully, but in this case, I was being a bully. Me and my friends, we were uh, teasing him about having freckles or something like that, and, and laughing, and, and he was kind of a nerdy kid, and, and so we were just making fun of him, as, as kids often do. And I remember at one point coming up with a bright idea. I said, Charles, you know what? We'll stop teasing you if you bow down and kiss my feet. I said that. And my friends are laughing. And I didn't think he would do it. But he looked at me and, and almost, with, almost with, with tears wailing in his eyes, wanting the teasing to stop, he bowed down and he kissed my feet. And my friends were, were laughing. And I chuckled at first. But then the ugliness of what I just asked him to do became very apparent to me. And I, I was just remember thinking to myself, who am I? Who am I to act in that superior way to another fellow human being? You see, when, when we're honest with ourselves, we realize there's this profound hypocrisy that afflicts us. That while at the same time we can recognize when injustice has been done to us, we don't always see that we're also perpetuators of that same injustice towards others. And in that picture, in that same year, in that same time period, I saw myself for who I really was. The evil that was in my heart to do that, it still grieves me to this day that I did that to him. And, and, I, and I wish to say that was the only thing I've ever done that I could say that would be so embarrassing, and it's not. The reality is I've done other things I would be more ashamed to tell you about. The reality is, is we are all plagued with sin. This idea that, that, that we think of self before others. I was thinking of my own superiority over this other fellow boy made in the image of God. And so then if the battle, if the cosmic war is between good and evil, then we're in trouble, aren't we? If God has come to do battle with evil, then he's come to do battle with all of us who share in that evil. So what does God do? He sends his number one soldier into the battle. He sends his son Jesus into the war. The, his son Jesus who is, has all the authority of his father. His son Jesus, who has all of the power of his father, who is the exact representation of him. God is in essence coming himself to do battle with the enemy. Now, at this point, what would you expect in the story? I think in our stories, a lot of the stories that we write have the hero coming in and they, they bring out the best guns and they bring out the biggest swords and they bring out the biggest superpowers and they overwhelm the enemy with power and glory. And God, in the greatest story, in the greatest plot twist ever, decides to overcome death by succumbing to it. He doesn't come out with 
cannons and guns and a sword. He comes and he succumbs to death. He, he, he enters into the struggle that we deal with. He enters into humanity, and Scripture says he is tempted as every way we are tempted to sin, yet without sin. And he comes and he lives among us and he shows us what does it mean to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. To, to heal, to, to proclaim the good news, to tell people of the kingdom of God. To, to walk with people, to walk with sinners. The people that the righteous wouldn't have you dine with. Jesus demonstrated this. And he was mocked for it. He was spit upon for it. And the Jewish leaders of their day wanted to kill him for it. And at that point, he says, I could call on legions of angels and they would come to my rescue and it would be over in a moment. He doesn't do that. He lays down his rights and he chooses to die for our sin. The sting of death is sin. He dies. He pierces the heart of death at its core by dying for our sin so that the punishment that we deserve that every wrong must be made right is done in Jesus alone because he is God himself he can take upon the sin of the whole world on his shoulder and pay in full the price for all sin for all time that's the good news but, but not only did he die, he didn't stay dead. And so not only is the heart of death pierced in his death to pay for our sins, but as he rises from the dead, as he rises in resurrection, the walls of death come crumbling down. And we now have a hope that goes beyond the grave. It, it, the, the passage in Romans that we went to earlier Romans chapter 8, immediately after Paul talks about the redemption of our bodies, Paul says this in verse 24 of chapter 8. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now in this hope, the hope of the redemption of our bodies... We've been saved, but hope that is not seen is not hope because who hopes for what he sees? And this is coming back to the idea of resurrected bodies. We, we don't see it yet. Like we don't see fixed knees. We don't see a sound brain and mind yet, right? Because we don't experience that yet. Like if we experience that now, there would be no need for hope. What he's saying is, hope is for what we don't see yet. And what Paul is trying to get us to do is saying, the, 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 the confidence that you can have of what you don't see is found in what God did. What God did historically, that started the argument in the beginning of chapter 15, where he, he re-articulates the fundamentals of the faith. And one of the fundamentals of the faith is that Jesus really did rise from the grave. And, and we went through the fact that, that he, was, he was actually killed by professional executioners. He actually rose and was seen by hundreds of people. 
And if they wanted to kill the faith back then, all they had to do was present the body of Jesus. And they never did because Jesus really did rise. And so it's on the base of that historical event that we can have the confidence and the faith that Jesus will raise us from the dead. We can't see it yet, but we can have confidence and faith that he's doing that. And that's the good news of the resurrection. And so with all of that, with that belief, with that faith, what are we called to do? How are we called to respond? Let me read uh, verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul brings it back to the practical, to the day-to-day, to the things that you think and the things that you do today, tomorrow, next week. He brings it back to practical, to practice. And, and I want you to, 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 to imagine with me like, if, if this is true, we, we live in the greatest movie ever. We're living it. And, and what we know is that God has guaranteed the ending. And it's a good, happy ending. And so the question is, and, and I'm asking you to imagine not to make believe, but to to place the image in your head of what's actually true based on what God has said. He has secured the victory, and if he has secured the victory, then how do we live in light of that victory? In other words, God is working together all the things that we do in, uh, in anticipation and in conjunction with and for that victory. Even the mundane things. Even going home to wash dishes. Even my wife was uh, up until 12.30 last night washing dishes and making cake in preparation for her parents to come. And um, it served not only her parents, but it served me because I got to sleep starting at 10.30 because I had to get up and preach and I wanted to be well rested. And you say, well, how's that connected to the kingdom and victory? And I would say it's connected in this way. The fabric of the new kingdom is, goes back to the, to the greatest commandment, to love God and love others. And so love is the fabric of this new kingdom. And so anytime we can, in this life, whether small things or big things, we can live out love here and now, it's an echo of the love that Christ has secured in eternity. It has deep meaning. It has deep reality because it's connected to, to the very thing that God died for so that we would be free to love God in the way that he's called us to. And so I want to say that as encouragement to, that, that the small things matter. Going home to wash dishes to serve someone else. Maybe it's, maybe it's seeing someone on the caller ID and actually answering the phone. I mean, that's real, right? I mean, I get caller ID, eh, not right now. I'd rather continue watching, you know, cats and cucumbers on YouTube. 
It's those little things that we can begin to engage in. Little acts of love that echo the victory that Jesus has secured in his death and in his resurrection. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you for your word. I thank you that you came and sent your son to die for us. Lord, that you have secured the ultimate victory over sin and death. And Lord, that we don't see it now. Lord, we remember what you did on the cross. We remember and believe that you rose from the dead, and that gives us hope in the future. Lord, there are probably thousands of decisions and things that that we'll be making today and tomorrow and in the weeks ahead. And I ask, Lord, that you would help to make this message really practical, that you would begin to... um, that you would help us believe what you've done and that that belief would work its way into practice, that it would change the things that we do, it would change the things that we say, it would change our thoughts. And Lord, that, that as we walk in obedience, you would be glorified and that you would help us to see the fruit of that and to experience the joy that comes from walking in the light. And so, Lord, I pray that you would uh, help us, even with big decisions. Some people have big decisions to make, and and I pray that this this truth, that you are are risen and that uh, we have an eternal destiny would would influence in a positive way uh, the big decisions and the small decisions of life, that it would influence how we spend our time and how we spend our money. So, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that our confidence is not in our corrupted flesh, but it is in the work that you did on the cross to secure for us an eternal home and eternal glorified bodies. Father, we thank you. We praise you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time also, um, as uh, Matt and Angie come up to sing, uh, we celebrate communion as, um, as what Jesus did for us. And so we have bread, we have gluten-free option, uh, gluten-free uh, for uh, basically representing Jesus' body broken, his blood shed for our sins. And so if you believe this, then we invite you to come up when you're ready, partake of communion, uh, basically saying, I believe that this is what Jesus did for me. And I'm proclaiming, I'm proclaiming his death until he comes again. So join me when you're ready.